Welcome to this month's special programming series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry, on ReachMD XM157. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment on neurology. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me today is Dr. John Rickert. Dr. Rickert is the Executive Vice President for Research and Clinical Programs at the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. Today, we're going to be discussing new developments in the disease that affects over 400,000 people in the United States and 2.5 million people worldwide. I know your society began in 1946. Could you tell us its mission then, and has it changed through the years? Our mission is the same as it was in the 1940s, and that is to end the devastating effects of MS. We do that through a number of efforts, many of them aimed at research to find the cure, but we also spend a great deal of effort in programs and efforts to make life more livable for people who suffer from MS. Do people with MS now have drug therapy that has been beneficial? Yes. In the last 15 years, we now have six new FDA-approved drugs, mostly for relapsing remitting forms of MS, but also some for more progressive forms of MS. Those are the interferons, copaxone, tisabri, and mitoxantron. You mentioned in your introductory remark, cure. Do we actually use the word cure when we're talking about multiple sclerosis? Well, you know, uh, like most autoimmune diseases, we don't know the cause. We think that MS is an autoimmune disease of the central nervous system that occurs in a genetically susceptible person and that it is triggered by an environmental agent and maybe more than one agent and that that trigger occurs early in life. When we talk about a cure for MS, we're really talking about three cures depending on what phase of the disease someone is in or what aspect of the disease someone's concerned about. So, for example, for someone who has recently been diagnosed or who has little or no accumulated neurologic deficit, a cure for that person is to stop the disease cold, to prevent the destructive process in the nervous system. On the other hand, for someone who has accumulated a significant amount of neurologic disability, a cure for that person would be to repair the nervous system and reverse the neurologic damage. And for people who are most concerned about whether or not their children or grandchildren are going to develop MS, that cure would involve preventing the disease in the first place. You mentioned genetic. Is there any genetic evidence? I know monozygous twins, there's a high incidence of multiple sclerosis. Where has that particular fact taken us, and what proof do we have that there is some genetic basis to this disease? Well, we've known for a number of years that the closer one is related to someone else with MS, the greater the risk of developing MS. If one is a sibling or a parent of someone with MS, then the risks are 20 to 50 times greater than in the general population. That is still a fairly low number, roughly 2 to 5% risk of developing MS. On the other hand, if one is an identical twin of someone who has MS, the risk of the second twin developing MS is about 30 or 35%. We've known for about 30 years that one of the HLA genes is associated with MS, but the pattern of inheritance has been one that has strongly suggested that variations in multiple genes probably each confer a small degree of increased risk. But until this past year, we really did not know what those genes were. Several years ago, we funded the development of consortium of MS genetics researchers. It's now called the International MS Genetics Consortium. 
This pooled the expertise of several groups around the world that had been independently working on the genetics of MS. And uh, we just recently funded a large study of a new gene chip called a SNP chip. SNP is SNP, and SNP stands for single nucleotide polymorphisms. And so these indicate places in the genome where a given DNA base is substituted for another DNA base. So it might be an adenine for cytosine, for example. And so uh, they developed a SNP chip that would look at 500,000 SNPs or 500,000 variations in the human genome. And they started the study with a thousand what we call trios, MS trios. We had been funding a DNA bank at UCSF, UC San Francisco, since the late 1980s, and they had accumulated DNA on many people, but included for the study was a thousand people with MS and both healthy parents. So each one of those threesomes is called a, a trio. And that data was just published in a landmark study in the New England Journal at the end of July of this past year. They confirmed the HLA association, but in addition, identified variants in 13 genes not previously known to be associated with MS. The two at the top of the list that had the strongest association were genes associated with the immune system, the interleukin-2 receptor alpha gene and the interleukin-7 receptor alpha gene. Some of the genes that popped up in the screen were genes that have no known function. There's one called KIAA, K-I-A-A, which has popped up in both the MS screen and the screen in inflammatory bowel disease. So we have a lot of work to do to figure out what that gene does normally and why a variation in it may predispose to autoimmune disease. These studies not only get us closer to understanding the cause of the disease so that we can learn how to prevent it, the cure number three that I talked about earlier, but it also has strong ramifications for cure number one, stopping the disease now, stopping the immune-mediated destruction of the nervous system. Because every time we identify a new gene that's associated with MS, that gene now becomes a potential therapeutic target. And so there's a lot of effort right now to start to try to target the interleukin-2 receptor and the interleukin-7 receptor in new therapeutic trials. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment on neurology on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me today is Dr. John Rickert. Dr. Rickert is the Executive Vice President for Research and Clinical Programs at the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, where today we're discussing a special neurologic segment that deals with multiple sclerosis. This is new information, certainly. It appears in Volume 257, Number 9 in the New England Journal, which Dr. Rickert was just mentioning, too. Could you also tell us what repair has to do with this? Where does research take us in trying to repair myelin damage? The issue of repair of the central nervous system is something that five or six years ago sounded like science fiction. But we have put a substantial percentage of the $46 million a year that we spend on research, the MS Society, toward studies on nervous system repair in the last several years. I think the listeners to your program probably know that while the peripheral nervous system can repair itself after an injury, the central nervous system does not. And we are now just beginning to understand some of the reasons why the CNS, brain and spinal cord, does not repair itself. One of the things that we've learned, and it's worth stepping back and saying that some of the basic 
biology of MS that has become clarified in the last several years uh, relates to the fact that while until about seven or eight years ago we used to think of MS as strictly a demyelinating disease, we now know that there's also axonal damage as well. And so when we talk about repair, we have to talk about both repair of axons and repair of myelin. And it's the axonal damage that doesn't ever really repair itself spontaneously. But we've begun to understand now what some of the mechanisms are that prevent repair from occurring spontaneously. So, for example, one of the reasons is one that at first blush actually sounds counterintuitive, and that is that there are proteins in myelin that prevent the regrowth and regeneration of axons. You would think on the surface of things that myelin should promote the repair of axons, but it turns out that the reason it doesn't is more related to growth and development than repair. And it's clear, of course, that as a child grows and grows in height, that the nervous system has to grow and the spinal cord needs to elongate. But when the child reaches full height, you need to have mechanisms that prevent further growth and elongation of the spinal cord and its axons. And that's where the myelin comes in. Myelin does not mature until the end of body growth. And that mature myelin has some proteins that prevent the further growth of axons. And now that we are understanding what some of those proteins are, one of them, for example, has the novel name of no-go to reflect its function here. And so now there are new efforts to try to block the inhibitory function of some of these myelin proteins in an effort to allow axonal regeneration. And of course, MS uh, still is a disease largely related to loss of myelin. And one of the things we've just learned in the last several years with the chemistry techniques is that some of the oligodendrocyte precursor cells, now I should say that oligodendrocytes are the myelin-producing cells in the central nervous system. And when myelin is damaged, normally uh, stem cells in the nervous system mature into oligodendrocyte precursor cells, which further mature into fully functional myelinating oligodendrocytes. And what we've learned in recent years is that in MS lesions, there are a number of oligodendrocyte precursor cells that, for some reason, do not further mature into myelin-producing cells. And we are now learning what some of those entities in the milieu of the MS lesion, uh, what some of those products are of the immune system that are actually preventing the oligodendrocyte precursor cells from maturing into fully functional myelin-producing cells. Some of the answers to repair are going to come from learning how to overcome that blockage in the maturation of the precursor cells. There's also a lot of effort now going into the study of stem cells. It's not clear yet whether stem cells are going to be an answer to repair. There are two things that I would like to tell you about related to the stem cells that we are very excited about. One of our worries for years has been that in order for stem cells to get to the site where they will do their work, they might have to be injected directly into lesions. And with work that we funded, a group of investigators from Milan has recently shown in an animal model of MS, that stem cells injected intravenously do in fact find their way to the sites of CNS injury and mediate repair. So that is a huge step forward for us. We now know that we can use human stem cells to remyelinate a mouse that is genetically deficient in myelin. 
So that's a big step. And the group at the University of Wisconsin that's doing that work is now about to study human stem cells and the ability to remyelinate in an inflammatory environment with an inflammatory mouse model of MS. So we're making great strides and we're very excited about it. It seems like we should be very hopeful that there are many things in the pipeline as far as research is concerned that actually will lead to a cure to this devastating disease that affects over 400,000 people in the United States. I want to thank Dr. John Rickert, who has been our guest today, and we've been having a special segment on neurology. Dr. Rickert is Executive Vice President for Research and Clinical Programs at the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. This has really been very informative and also very hopeful. And I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, features a special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry. 